Hey, business building warrior. Welcome to Silent Sales Machine Radio. We've got a compilation episode for you today. Let me explain. Over the past couple months, three, four months actually, we've been having a regular guest appear on this program and the many segments that we've provided from this guest have been extremely popular. It's generated a lot of conversations in our Facebook group, which by the way, if you're not a member of our free Facebook group, there's a link at silentgym.com. There's about 71,000 of us in there. We're all talking about how to succeed on Amazon. People from all over the world, around the clock, talking about Amazon strategies, the strategies that we discuss on this program. So a lot of popular conversations have arisen out of the discussions we've had with the guest that we are highlighting today. And that guest, of course, is Mr. Jeff Schick. S-C-H-I-C-K. JeffSchick.com is his website. He is our resident expert for all things Amazon policy and Amazon legal. I've had some great conversations with him. We've inserted these conversations into our Wednesday episodes. And you can hear them if you scroll back these five to 10 minute conversations with Jeff. Well, we thought, hey, there's been some really good topics introduced in those mini segments. Let's compile them all into one episode. So if you look at the show notes, we've got a bit of a breakdown of the topics that we're going to hit today, but they're all very beneficial, very useful topics to help you stay out of trouble, avoid the red tape, avoid any delays with your account or any temporary suspensions, that sort of thing. And just to make sure that you're at ease on this subject, and you'll hear Jeff mention this several times during the multiple conversations you're about to hear us have, that the fear of suspension, the fear of losing your account is overblown. It's really not something you should be afraid of, especially if you're taking the right steps. And I can say this, having taught thousands of students for coming up on about 12 years on Amazon, we've been in e-commerce for 18, 19 years coaching e-commerce. But for the last 12 years or so, we've been teaching Amazon strategies. And I'm aware of less than a handful of people who have been permanently suspended. And of those, they kind of gave up trying to get their account back after a short period of time. And that's the reason they remain suspended. With persistence, you can get your account back no matter what scenario you, you face. So permanent suspensions really aren't that big of a thing in the Amazon arena, especially if you're playing by the rules, especially if you're paying attention to the details that Jeff's going to share with us on today's program. So a very valuable episode that will do a couple things. It will inform you and equip you for success. And ideally, the goal I have is it will put you at ease as well that Amazon's not this big, scary landscape that many people make it out to be. It just doesn't have to be, regardless of what selling model you're using. Assuming that selling model is within Amazon's policies, which some aren't. For example, drop shipping. Don't ever drop ship. I'm not going to get onto that right now. But for those of you who are wondering why I would have said such a thing, yeah, we've seen a lot of permanent suspensions from people who didn't learn it from us. They learned it somewhere else and started trying to drop ship and they did end up losing their account. But if you follow the systems and strategies that we teach in this community, your odds of losing your account are so razor thin, small, that it's not worth being worried about. All right, so let's jump over and enjoy segment after segment. Now, these are, it's going to be a little choppy because these were separate conversations. So we'll have a little transition between them, but it's a handful of great topics. And like I said, if you go to the show notes at silentgym.com, you can see the full show notes for this episode. You can see a breakdown of all the topics that we discussed today. Enjoy this episode where Jeff and I hang out and talk through some of the most common 
policy and legal issues that you should be looking at, especially if you're a seller in our community following the strategies that we teach. Enjoy. What have you got for us today, Jeff? All right. Well, Jim, I've got a uh, bundle topic of interest. So one of the most common questions people ask me is about bundles. And I think that they're a great resource for sellers who want to get into their own branded listings, have that opportunity to differentiate themselves from the competition. And so, you know, what we really want to just talk about is kind of, you know, the idea of bundles done right and kind of what does that look like? And so, um, well, I know Jim and I will talk about some, a couple of different things, but today's topic is going to be really focused on, you know, which bundle, you know, what, what would be an acceptable bundle when you think about it from an Amazon perspective? And of course, you're talking about picking brands that we'd all recognize and, and bundling them together. And we want to be able to do it in such a way that that brand not only is protected from other sellers maybe jumping on our listing, but Amazon doesn't have a problem with it at some point, or the brand owners themselves, if we're mixing, say, candy bars or cleaning supplies together, that the brand owners right. don't have a problem with it. So how can we play safe in that, in that fun arena? So it's a great question. So I'm going to you know, pick on a brand today. And, I, this, and I'll full disclosure, I've never dealt with a case with this brand. So this is purely just hypothetical. Brand. They may file IP complaints. They may not. Um, I don't know. I've never seen one from them. But today, let's talk. pretend that the brand in question is Windex because everyone knows what Windex is, I would assume. So you know, if we're going to make a bundle and we're selling Windex, let's say maybe it's Windex wipes and Windex in a bottle. You know, that's a good bundle by itself. But how do we make it go from just a you know, branded bundle because that would be a branded bundle of branded Windex? And how do we make it you know, Jeff's cleaning supply bundle? Um, and so that's what I wanted to talk about today is how do we do that safely? So what what would you put in that bundle to do it safely? So I think really the key is, is coming up with a third element that makes it unique. First off, you get the added benefit because if someone sees like, oh, I've got clean, you know, Windex wipes, I've got Windex, um, you know, spray, and then you come up with a unique item that complements those. That makes it different than everything else on the market. So like in my mind right now, I'm thinking, you know, Maybe it's a monogram microfiber towel um, that just you know has a really cool logo on it, and that you've come up with, and that that's your brand. You know, that's your trademark logo, that's your microfiber towel, and now you're selling it with something people need when they're cleaning windows with the Windex. So you've got your you've got your window cleaning towel, you've got your window cleaner, and you've got you know different types that people can choose from. And it needs to be an item that you might sell separately that has some perceived or you know some actual value to it. It can't just be a little uh, three by five note card that says Jeff's cleaning kit. You can't <laughs> exactly. Write on that no, with a pen, right? You don't suggest that. I don't suggest that. No, I do, I suggest the the branded, you know, the towel that you know something of value, and it doesn't have to be a towel. I mean, I'm trying to think, you know, what else goes with like a pack of supplies? a pack of branded sponges, maybe, or you know, in a, in a unique yeah. shape, maybe, right? Absolutely. Um, it could even be a, a a mat. You know, like I know when I clean, you know, the uh, the the sliding glass door that oftentimes Windex comes running down. And so if I had like a mat on the floor, that would be helpful. Right. You know, it's something that, that can be want. perceived as adding value to the bundle that you can customize and personalize that can't be duplicated maybe by another seller. Now you've got an ASIN that belongs only to you and you're unlikely to catch any heat from the brand owners or from Amazon. Correct. Because at the end of the day, what we want to do is stay on the right side of the bundles. You know, Keep Amazon happy, keep the brands happy. And you're, when you've got these really great products that complement it, everyone walks away happy. Exactly. And what's the worst case 
And I, I didn't set you up ahead of time for this, but you know, we're, gonna, we're kind of flying through this topic today. But yeah. what's the worst case scenario if I do set up a bundle the wrong way? Or maybe I've got some that are set up incorrectly. Should I be losing sleep at night over this? What's, what have you seen play out? Um, we've seen a variety of situations with bundles. So it really comes down to Amazon. It comes down to the brand. I wouldn't lose sleep over it. But what I might consider is, you know, making changes. You know, the beauty about Amazon is that you're able to, you know, if it's your branded listing, you're able to pivot and you're able to make changes. And so the version that you ship in next week is not, doesn't have to be the version you shipped in last week. So, you know, let that sink in. You know, if last week you shipped in a bundle and it didn't have the towel, you know, maybe next week you decide that you're going to change it up and, and now you're going to start selling the bundle with the towel. So, you know, we, we live in an era where it's not like we have a thousand stores we have to ship, you know, new display cases to. We can make changes to product detail pages on the fly and then, and then be, and then, and then pivot and really see what works and see what doesn't. Beautiful. Well, anything else you can teach us about uh, bundles before we end this short segment today? Uh, let's see. Uh, well, Jim, fire away. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that that that's all. I mean, that clears up in my mind, you know, yeah. because some of the things that we've seen, for example, are people put in like you know a little card or you know a little simply printed card or something that that doesn't necessarily add value to the bundle. But you've taught us a good lesson. Say it needs to be that item that you add in needs to be something that brings value to the bundle. Absolutely, and, yeah, it brings value. Think about it from a consumer perspective. What would you, the consumer, buy? Mm-hmm. And and really, that helps avoid all sorts of issues because at the end of the day, if you've got that bundle with a note card, and let's say you're selling a five dollar bottle of Windex and a five dollar bottle, uh, you know, pack of Windex wipes, and then you've got that note card. Well, by Amazon standards, you should be selling that bundle for ten dollars and fifty cents. Not really clearing a whole lot of profit there, but if you're selling it with that microfiber towel, well, now suddenly you can say, well, that microfiber towel is worth five dollars too. Right. Now we're selling it for fifteen dollars much more profit margin to play with, more exactly. money to spend on PPC and everything else. Awesome so. tip. And we've got training in the Proven Amazon course on how to build bundles. So if you, you ready sure to do. jump into so. that arena, um, beautiful. Yeah. Why should someone put an Amazon legal expert, a lawyer, on retainer as an Amazon seller? He's got a great service that does just that. So tell us about it, Jeff. So it's, it's a great question. Um, I guess first and foremost, you know, they're obviously sellers can put any lawyer on retainer. When I was in law school, I had a lawyer on retainer. Um, they didn't happen to be an Amazon focused lawyer, uh, which, as I learned, was expensive because I was paying them to learn Amazon, and it wasn't uh, always the, the smartest financial decision. Um, but really, the whole benefit of having a lawyer on retainer is that you have someone as your point of contact. You have that team that you know to reach out to. So you've got me, you've got my paralegals. So when something goes wrong, you have someone that you can call for help and you're not immediately scrambling going, you know, oh my gosh, what do I do now? Because I remember when I got suspended the first time, I didn't even know suspensions were a thing on Amazon. So I immediately went to Google. I was copy, I copied and pasted the notice I received from Amazon because I was so confused by it. And and then on and then of course Google starts picking up all these different articles that have been written about suspensions and different people offering services. So you know having that point of contact to know who to go to when anything goes wrong is is crucial. But even more importantly, it's having that point of contact to go to when you have questions about things that you don't know, so that things don't go wrong. Because the vast majority of my clients that I work with, 
you know, don't get suspended at all. In fact, you know, I had a seller ask me recently, they said, why aren't you posting reinstatement stories all the time about all these clients that you're reinstating? And I was like, well, you know, the reality is, is that of the clients who have had me on retainer for more than a month that we work with, um, I less than 1% of them this year have been suspended. Yeah, it just so, doesn't happen that often. And when it does it happen, you get them back. <laughs> Uh, if you've been doing this for four years and I, we've mentioned on other episodes, you know, like a 99% success rate getting folks back when they do run into some, some trouble. Right. Uh, it's an, a bit of an overblown issue, but it's something we definitely do need to focus on. Um, right. So it is. And, and I like to say the reason people don't like my, that 1% rate isn't because Amazon's not suspending people. It's because they're calling with the questions. So like, for instance, I had a call today that with one of my clients and they're like, I'm thinking about buying from this, this website. I said, okay. And we go to it and I go, something's off. I'm like, I don't know what it is just yet, but there's something off about it. And he goes, okay, well, what is it? And I, we start looking and I'm like, let's go to Google and see it. Like they have this picture of this warehouse. So let's go to Google and see if Google maps lines up with that warehouse. Well, when we go to Google maps and we pull up street view, it's a different company name on the warehouse. It's not there. It's not even their warehouse. Okay, strike one. We start doing more research. I'm like, they're just, it's not passing the smell test. There's something wrong with it. Um, well, on the one hand, you could sell, someone can say, well, you just stopped him from potentially getting a profitable product. On the other hand, I also stopped him from having a very costly suspension if the person was, in fact, selling you know, counterfeit products. So it's calls like those that you know, weren't, the call wasn't even about that particular issue, but it just happened to morph into talking about that. And that could that can be the difference between him being suspended during Q4 and not being suspended because without that call and without that person to turn to, um, he would have, you know, potentially bought that product and then ended up, you know, becoming one of those reinstatement stories you read about online. Yeah. Um, and, and and so a lot of the value of, of getting you on retainer is preventing you being suspended to begin with because you're filtering some of the decisions you're making through someone who's an ear seller. You've been there, done that. Right. And you're familiar with our replens model around here, which is why you're such a friend of this community as uh, you've kind of connected those two dots better than anyone ever has before. That line of communication from Amazon to our community from a legal perspective, just invaluable. So you, it's not a matter of just getting people reinstated. It's a matter of preventing them from ever being suspended to begin with. Right. And it's having that again, it's, it's, yeah, I can't stress enough. It's having that team, you know, you've got your coaches on the one hand that you turn to with your Amazon questions. You've got your legal team on the others that you turn to with your legal questions. And together we're able to help just in, you know, create that positive environment for sellers to succeed and that, and really thrive. And so it's, that's really what it's all about. It's, it's people not having to turn to social media when making important business decisions that have long-term impacts to themselves and family. And what they're doing, yeah, so. using a using a real pro, and I, I appreciate the the very low monthly fee to the services that you provide, and having folks on retainer. We've got you on retainer. Many of others in our community, our leaders do as well. Can't encourage it enough. As your biz, business begins to grow, and you start asking yourself as you're falling asleep at night, hey, how secure is my Amazon account? I, I'm making some money here. I want to protect this thing. This is like buying an insurance policy, having a guy who knows this stuff. But we're going to tackle another subject today. It will help put you at ease and keep you well-informed on the landscape of Amazon legal issues. So what do you got for us today, Jeff? So common question that people ask, and it's new sellers, old sellers, 
you name it, you know, they can be, you know, 10 year veterans. And I still get the same question. It's what gets people suspended? (laughs) And the answer to that is, um, you know, there's a, you know, obviously uh, you have to preface it. You know, people can be suspended for a variety of reasons. Most of them are preventable. And I'd say the number one preventable suspension that we deal with is people listing on the wrong brand. And it sounds so simple, but if you look at a product detail page, the title may not match the letters that are usually in blue on um, on on desktop versions, and that, you know so where it says you know brand colon you know insert brand here, um, and people a lot of times don't follow that, and that's the number one thing people get suspended for right now. Now, um, before we dive into this any further, I know a recent episode, a recent episode, we you and I chatted. Uh, and we talked about the odds of being reinstated if you are suspended. So please go back and refer to that. We're not going to dive into that right now, but you said at the time, like 99% of the time, you get your clients back. You've been doing this four years, suspensions, the vast majority of the time, unless you're doing something truly uh, on purpose, that truly violates and you kind of roll the dice and you know it. Those little accidents we make, you can get your account back, but you don't want the inconvenience of a suspension. So talk us through, Jeff. Now, what do you? I have a question for you on this. You said the the wrong brand listed. Talk me through an example of that, so we can kind of paint a picture of that. So let's take a mythical listing. You know, let's imagine all of a sudden that Chevrolet is selling Tahoes on on Amazon. You know, and so now you can go and you know have it delivered in two days. You know, because obviously semiconductor shortages is gone in this in this hypothetical example. <laughs> right. But you know, let's say Chevy Tahoes are now available for sale on Amazon. Um, if we're looking at that Chevy Tahoe, what it should say is the title might say, you know, Chevrolet Tahoe, you know, extended version with you know leather seats and you know navigation. Like that might be your title, and then of course you got your bullet points to say what's inside it, and the brand should be Chevrolet. Now let's imagine for a second that we go to get on this listing and instead of it saying the brand is Chevrolet that it says you know brand colon SUV store or some other random thing or it might be Chevy you know C H E V Y or Chev space Rolet gotcha so in this scenario i've set up a new listing selling that same item and I'm setting not up- you necessarily, not you as like you. You might be just joining an existing listing, but somebody else might have created. Someone that else listing. has set it up. Okay, so this that's an even better scenario because as a replen seller, which is the model we teach around here, a lot of times we right. sell on existing listings. So someone else has set up a listing, not the brand owner Chevrolet, right. but someone else who's authorized to sell sell Chevys, but they used Chevy instead of Chevrolet as the brand, for example. Correct or. Maybe they're not authorized to create listings for Chevy at all, and they are find that they're gated in Chevy or Chevrolet. I mean, they're not, and they they go and they cre- and that's why. Then all of a sudden, they say, "Well, if I put Chev dash Rolet, now it lets me create this as a new brand on Amazon." Gotcha. So gotcha. That makes total that. sense. Yeah. So that ASIN is doomed. It may last for a while. Right. It may last for a long time. There'll be many sellers come and go and sell successfully. But eventually, the sellers on that listing, it, it could either get shut down or they could face a suspension. What What would be the first alarm bell that you might hear on a, if you're on a listing like that? A suspected IP. So it might get a suspected IP claim and someone looks at it and appeals to Amazon to get it put back up. 
and then other people start selling again on it, or the person who got the suspected IP starts selling again on it. Uh, similarly, uh, Chevrolet or General Motors might go file an IP claim against it, and they might say, trademark on product detail page, please remove this because our brand is misspelled. And then someone starts sending in their Chevy invoices trying to get you know, the listing reinstated because they've still got one you know, Tahoe left to sell and they don't want it to, to not be sold. So it's, uh, you know, that would also be you know, where that could turn into a suspension situation as well. Gotcha. And these are the types um, of situations big, that you help oh, handle. You, you've got your monthly retainer. Is that, that's what we refer to it as, is a monthly retainer fee? Is that, how do you refer to that on Jeff Schick? That's what I call it. it yeah. It's the monthly retainer. Yeah, $89 a month. And it, it would cover you against those suspensions. So Amazon sends you an email saying you have 72 hours to give us a plan of action or even worse, they send you a deactivation notice. You let us know and we take care of it because you've been a retainer client. You've been working with us and we you know, jump in and, and write those appeals for you. You don't pay anything extra and we fight with Amazon until you're back up. So. And then your most likely worst case scenario is you just can't sell them that ACE any longer. You're going to have to sell, sell your uh, Tahoe or you, you know, maybe through a Facebook marketplace instead of uh, Amazon at that point, right? Probably so. And you know, the other big thing to watch out to for too, you know, with those replens, just to think about on this Chevy example, let's say you go and you try to list that Chevrolet, and it says listing restrictions apply. Um, you must request, you know, un- ungating approval to sell this item, and you go and you submit your Chevrolet invoice. They come back and they say, you know, we can't verify this invoice, therefore you're still gated. But then your friend tells you about this amazing Chevy listing that is also for a Tahoe. That is, that's, that's also another problematic area that you want to avoid because now with Amazon, what they're saying is, oh, he couldn't sell Chevrolet. So he went and sold Chevy. Again, turns in, it's not a permanent problem. We've, you know, for those cases we've worked on, we've gotten, you know, people back from it, but it's going to be a disruption to your right. business for sure. Right. And in this case, you know, we, we may have some new listeners say, Jeff, I just want to make it clear. I don't know of any sellers in our community that are actually selling cars. <laughs> but that's no, an easy brand for us I to... Mean... We just kind of pulled that from the air. You know, the, the brand, <laughs> using the brand name properly. Uh, and, and typically, we don't encourage our sellers. You know, I, I haven't set up a new listing in a very long time. Like Jimmy, the guy that created our Replens course, I don't think he's ever set up a new listing. We just sell against existing listings. But just because the listing was already there doesn't mean it's always going to be there. It might get shut down at some point. And if you push back too hard saying, no, I have every right to sell this first sale doctrine or whatever, like, no, sometimes you can't sell it on Amazon. You're going to have to walk away from that brand or that ASIN uh, right. as, the, as the prudent path forward. Exactly. And that's why someone um, like you that we can bounce this off of is so valuable, man. Absolutely. No, I'm happy to help. It's, uh, I think education is key to everyone's success, you know, that, you know, and even in a suspension, you know, you can keep learning because Amazon may hold your inventory. They may temporarily hold your money, but they can't take away your knowledge and your education and what you learn. That's right. Which makes you invaluable going forward. And like we mentioned earlier, and we mentioned every time suspensions come up, I feel like I need to say this the vast majority of the time, your clients 99% of the time. You know, in my experience, having taught thousands and thousands of students how to sell on Amazon, just a tiny handful of people, I could list them on one hand, have been permanently suspended. And they, most of them, kind of gave up and just said, I am kind of done with it anyway. Uh, so this right. is, isn't a big issue, but you do need to pay attention to these details to keep things running smoothly. So, All right. So a common question that I get from sellers, new and experienced, 
Um, in fact, I had it on one of my calls today. They said, what is the chance that I'm going to be permanently suspended from Amazon? Mind you, this is a seller who has a healthy account. They're in the green. They're above 200 as their score. In fact, I think they're in the 300s. So not a small seller by any means and definitely not anywhere near the unhealthy category. And they're asking, are they going to be permanently suspended from Amazon? Yeah, so, and we hear this so, a lot from, from people who are considering an Am- growing an Amazon business. Amazon has this reputation. And I think they've it's probably their own fault because they call it a suspension, for example, when you're trying to get set up a new account and you haven't supplied all the information they need yet. They need another copy of your driver's license or whatever. So they suspend you until yeah. they get what they need. So everyone's like, oh, I got suspended on Amazon. Like, yeah, everybody does for a few hours when you're trying to sign up for your account, right? So suspensions right. everywhere. But but this idea of a permanent suspension, I love this question. How would you answer that? So the answer to that is it's extremely rare for somebody to be permanently suspended. In fact, you almost have to try to, to get it that to happen. Now, that's not to say that, you know, there haven't been cases. I mean, you know, I, I've got a case right now with one of the sellers where they were suspended and they said, Point blank to me, they said, we don't care to ever sell on Amazon again. We just want all of our money back. And, you know, we took the case and we reached out to Amazon's attorneys. And we, you know, I said, once we tell them that, they're they're gonna take your word for it. And and seller says, I don't care, I just want my money back. And so we let them know and they said, Okay, you know, we were gonna, you know, work with you, but if they don't care, then we'll write you a check for all of their money and release all their inventory. And so they they did get what they wanted. Are they permanently suspended? I mean, yes. Probably not because the that's what they requested. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> well, I, I tell people all the time, Jeff, you know, we've, we've been teaching Amazon seller strategies for 12 plus years at this point, thousands and thousands of students. And I can still count on one hand the number of people that I know that, well, I, I put it this way. I'm scratching my head like, hmm, they got suspended. I'm not sure exactly why. And in a few of those cases, I found out later, well, they they just kind of gave up, kind of like the client you just mentioned. But in the vast majority of cases, you know, I, I'm fond of saying 95% of the time, maybe you have a different number in your mind. It's a non-issue fairly quickly. It could take some days or weeks sometimes, right? So maybe speak to that. Like if we take that worst case scenario off the table, what are some of those other inconvenient circumstances right. that people might find themselves in if they get on the wrong side of Amazon's policy. It, it's so I mean it it, it certainly can be inconvenient. Um, and and I don't want to downplay it at all because when you go through a suspension it's it's de- downright devastating. Um, I still remember when I was in law school and I got suspended on Amazon and it was a two it was two weeks of torture because yeah. I you know you're sitting there they're holding, you know, at the time for me, they were holding $195,000 of money. And I had a $175,000 American Express bill due. So it was, it was the most stressful, no joke. you know, two weeks of my life. Um, well, we were fortunate that I was able to get reinstated very quickly. And, you know, I hadn't, we hadn't done anything wrong. So it was a mistake on Amazon's part and got a nice little apology email and they actually did wire the funds to us the next day. So instead of making us wait for a normal payout and send it by EFT, they actually did send the money by wire transfer. And they can be very human for a huge company that's doing billions they of dollars a month, right? <laughs> right. So, but, you know, obviously that's an extreme example. So what is it, you know, what does a typical suspension look like? It's usually not that long. It's usually, you know, if, if we're, 
you know, if we're lucky, I've had suspensions that we've reinstated accounts in 20 minutes. Um, that's probably by no means the average, but that's, you know, the record so far is that's happened twice now that they've been reinstated in 20 minutes. I'd say usually you're looking at a couple hours to a couple days, just depending on what the severity of the issue is and how many moving parts there are. But at the end of the day, Amazon doesn't want people to be suspended because a suspended account doesn't generate money for Amazon. In fact, it costs them money because now they've got to deal with your inventory. And yes, they're going to debit your funds, but that's that's not like when they keep your money, it's being held in trust. It's in an escrow account. It's not money that they're earning interest on. It's not being used for operating. They're not investing in a robot. Like That money is being set aside as a liability on their balance sheet. And it's certainly by no means an asset. And so they don't want people's money. They're doing that because the potential you know, risk mitigation that they have to incur. So at the end of the day, you know, we've seen Amazon this past year be extremely human. Um, I think, you know, as of now, almost every account suspension we've worked on has been reinstated. There's only... Yeah, that's an interesting statistic. You know, you've worked on a good number of accounts. I don't know if you're at liberty to share how many, but what is your ratio? What's your success rate? It'd be north of, it'd be probably north of 98%. But, um, you know, again, that 98%, sometimes, you know, it may take a couple months to get there on certain accounts that have major, major problems. Right. So... But that's the exception, not the norm. So I love it. Well, and from my vantage point, again, just so folks know that are listening or watching this today, you're the most experienced guy with the most integrity and validation from my vantage point at doing what you do. So we're thrilled to have you in this community. And I think this short little episode, now there's always more that we can share. Maybe we'll do it in another segment soon uh, about some of the specific behaviors and things that people need to watch out for. But just knowing that Unless you're one of the really, really bad guys that's really trying, like you're trying to sell Nike shoes up with knockoffs you brought in from China and, and you know, you're just really going in deep, right. violating serious policies on purpose. As long as you're not one of those guys, you, you're just kind of innocently making some mistakes. The vast majority of the time, you're going to be okay. Correct. That's and, good to know. And it's, and most of it's recoverable. And it's, I mean, you know, for the, especially for the innocent people. I don't think we've ever had a case where someone was innocent and they didn't get back on. Yeah. The cases that are, you know, the cases where people didn't get back on, well, you know, there was, there was, there's, yeah, obviously. They knew they were taking the, they were rolling the dice and they knew it. Yes. And so that's, you know, it, 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 it happens. So, Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, I really trying to avoid fear. And then I don't know if I've shared this with you, but I just passed my four-year anniversary of when I became a licensed attorney. And literally the first day I became an attorney was when I worked on my first Amazon case in the attorney client role. And so I've been doing I've been handling Amazon suspensions now for four years. And congratulations. I, I love it. Yeah. There's yeah. only one other attorney in the space, uh, up in you know, CJ that has has done as many, you know, suspensions as I have. So well, it's fun. Well, well done, man. We're thrilled to work with you and, and you've been at our events and many people in our community begin to rely on you. You have a great monthly retainer program. Why don't you explain that for a moment and folks can go check that out on your website? Yeah. So after I got suspended back when I was, you know, in law school, immediately I started calling people and it was like thousands of dollars here, thousands of dollars there. You know, one guy who wasn't a lawyer quoted me $15,000 to get my account back. And when I asked him what was his chance of success, he said he, he couldn't guarantee any sort of results. So of course, I, you know, being the stubborn law student I was, I figured out how to do it myself. Um, but so that really sparked this desire to come up with, you know, a low quality or 
low cost. Low cost, <laughs> high quality is probably what you meant there. <laughs> yeah. That's so all right, man. Hey, this is just two very out. real dudes hanging out, man. It's all good. <laughs> so when I was when I was suspended, I, I really, you know, came up with this idea that we needed to have high quality, affordable uh, attorneys in the space because it just it didn't exist. And so um, that's really where I came up with this idea behind it. So it's eighty nine dollars a month. You can talk to me. You can talk to my paralegals anytime. You schedule calls with us. We're happy to walk you through issues, you know, on a proactive basis. So that way you don't get in trouble. And then also we're there to help you on the reactive side if you do. Uh, you don't pay anything extra. So anything that happens on Amazon or Walmart, uh, you're covered. And we take care of it for you from you know A to Z so that you don't have to worry about it. And that's phenomenal because I know in this industry, there's a good number of players and they'll, they'll charge you thousands of dollars to handle some of the circumstances that you're, you cover. Hey, we'll get back to the show in just a second, but I've got to tell you about a great sponsor who's just joined us. I'm talking about Sellerboard. This is a very popular service used by many Amazon sellers in our community because they understand how important it is, how crucial it is to know your numbers. How do you know how profitable you are? All those fees, the different expenses, the cost of goods sold, how do you track it all? Sellerboard is phenomenal. Starting as low as just $15 a month with a two-month trial on top of that. You really need to check these guys out. Get over to silentgym.com slash numbers. Again, silentgym.com slash numbers. It's time to know your numbers. It's an accurate profit analytics software tool just for Amazon sellers. They've been doing this since 2017. It is a really cool tool doing some things that I'm unaware of anyone else doing. So the pricing starts at $15. Like I said, get your two-month trial at silentgym.com slash numbers. So I have an interesting one. This, this is a, a very commonly asked question, and it's a very commonly people don't know the answer. Um, it is, what should a seller do when they get an IP complaint? And so, Great because, question. you know, the more you sell, the more the odds are going to happen. You're going to get an IP complaint. You know, it's not a matter of if, but when. And being having that plan in place is kind of like almost like, you know, coming up with your emergency plan so that you know, well, what are you going to do? So that way you think about it now when you're not stressed so that when it happens, you already know what steps you're going to take. Yeah. And, and I don't want to say that it's inevitable. But with the model that we teach, it probably is going to happen at some point. And everyone gets nervous when they see that first IP complaint. So walk us through, uh, first, maybe let's start here. How serious is this or how serious could it be? What's my worst case scenario? And then let's talk about what do you do when you get it one? So worst case scenario is an interesting one. The um, Because Amazon has a variety of different actions they can take depending on the type of claim. So the worst case scenario claim would probably, you know, in my book would be a seller having a, what's called a confirmed counterfeit. That's where a brand went onto your listing. They bought the product from you, the seller. They then looked at it. They maybe maliciously, it's some, we've had it happen with a couple brands so far this year, where then they go to Amazon and they say, I want to make a complaint through brand registry and file a counterfeit. And then Amazon has a question. This next question down is, did you buy this product? And if they check yes and supply an order number, now we've pushed it from the counterfeit without a test buy into the confirmed counterfeit category. 
And so in those cases, um, it can drop a seller's uh, account health rating down to zero and it can result in suspensions. So that's your worst case scenario. Typical, the most common IP complaints we see are counterfeit without a test buy. Those have about a four to 10 point impact on the account health rating. Uh, Amazon can can double it in certain circumstances, so it could go up to 20 points. But either either way, since you're starting at 200, even if you had 20 points taken off, that's not pushing you into the red zone because you still have you know a, you know dozens of more points to go before you get suspended. So it's you know certain certainly something to be mindful of. I'm not saying hey just you know start selling anything and everything that gets IP claims. They don't matter because that's not. That's not what I'm saying. That's not the message we want to send. Certainly, you do want to try to avoid them absolutely, and 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 stay above board, and, and you know keep right. keep good records, and only buy from reputable sources. Uh, but we did actually have one of those where we innocently enough bought a small handful of a product that did generate that counterfeit IP complaint as confirmed by a purchase. And we had no idea that it was a counterfeit, but they came back and showed us, hey, the packaging is actually completely different. And and we had bought it from, uh, it was like some kind of closeout. We used to do that. We don't do it anymore. This has been like five years ago. I don't ever buy anything from like closeouts, you know, discount bargain barns, you know, with bins of stuff. Like I don't sell that stuff on Amazon. Uh, maybe that'll be a good segment for us to do sometime. But it happened to me Absolutely. and we weren't suspended. We had to stop selling it and we had to create a plan of action and we were fine. Is that the case most of the time? So to answer your question, you know, when someone gets an IP claim, they don't often cause sellers to immediately get suspended. But left unaddressed and left, you know, where they continue getting more, definitely is it can cause suspensions to happen. Now, there's an interesting... Uh, I was asked this question today by a client. They said, what... What what is Amazon expecting in terms of me to address this violation? It says on here, your submission is required. The person on the phone told me I must address this as promptly as possible. What does that unacceptable timeline look like? And the answer to that is it depends. But it's typically not, it's somewhere between as fast as they want you to reply and as slow as you possibly can so that you figure out. And the reason for that, you know, is that you need to figure out the facts. And so a big part of what my team does is that we do fact finding. So anyone that submits an IP claim, the first step before you know an attorney ever even touches the case is that we have one of our paralegals go through the case and look at all the facts. Because believe it or not, what sellers see and what we see can be two different things. And of course, what Amazon sees could also be door number three. <laughs> and so our goal is to make sure that we have all of our facts lined up in a row all of our documentation in order before we ever even start thinking about going to Amazon. Because the last thing we want to do is go to Amazon and say, you know, let's, you know, here's an interesting case I worked on recently. Um, it's, you know, let's say the product in question is Velcro. And we had a, you know, we have a private label listing that says Velcro on it because it has Velcro, they claims to have Velcro straps. And the Amazon account health rep would say, oh, just turn in your invoice from your manufacturer. Well, what if our manufacturer's in China and it doesn't and it doesn't talk about Velcro at all? It talks about hook and, hook and loop closure. Well, submitting that invoice to Amazon isn't going to clear up the IP claim because it's going to raise more red flags. Right. So a big part of what my team does is we look at all the list, we look at all the facts of the case. We come up with a summary. That's when it then gets handed to myself and I start looking at the case. And really, you know, coming up with the attack plan of how we're going to 
you know, how we're going, you know, what's the diagnosis and what's the treatment plan. And then from there, we come up with, you know, the next steps on how to address the IP claim. So, you know, good for sellers as coming up with this, you know, this whole concept of IP claim emergency plan. Step one really is to get your documentation in order because you can't make any decisions if you don't know what you're dealing with. So, you know, let me repeat that because I think it's important. If you don't know what you're dealing with, you can't address the problem. It's so first step is collect all your receipts. You know, look at what you sold. You know, we have a, I've had sellers where they're like, I swear it was a, it was Nike. It was a Nike shirt, you know, and then we pull the receipts and it's champion. And that's, you know, and Nike doesn't file IP claims. So I mean, before people get freaked out thinking that Nike or champion file IP claims because they don't, um, or have not, I should say they haven't, you know, I'm not saying that they do, but you know, it's a lot of times people will get hung up and they'll be like, it was a Nike listing. The PDP says Nike. And then we look at it and it's like, no, the PD, the product detail page or PDP says, you know, brand XYZ. So really we collect all the data up front figure out what kind of issue you have. And then now, now you're able to then come up with next steps. Maybe that next step is that you decide that you're going to appeal it on your own. Um, that's, you know, some sellers are, are confident doing that. It, yeah, I certainly. would say, you know, one thing is if you get one rejection on your own, it might be time to think about looking for, for help because um, one, the way Amazon system works, they keep a record. And so every rejection gets stacked in there. And by the time, you know, I had one seller come to me recently. They had submitted 12 appeals. Uh, this was for an account suspension. They had submitted 12 appeals on their own before they sought professional help. And I, going into it, I told them, I'm like, I just, you know, I'm prefacing this case that this is going to be tough because when we submit your appeal that I write for you, this agent now has, you know, on monitor on right monitor, they've got your appeal that I just wrote for you that they're looking at. And on the left monitor, they've got 18 red X's saying that you've been rejected with notes next to it, why it's been rejected. It's really hard on number 19 for them to push the button and then have to write an explanation why they're overturning 18 other people that they said no, that said no, that, that said your account should stay you know, deactivated. Um, on that case, we did win. That person took the time, they read it, and they reinstated the account on the first appeal. That's so phenomenal. Yeah, and that's the value of working with someone who knows what data and facts needs to be gathered and how to write that appeal. And you know, I, I don't want these segments to cause anyone's heart rate to go up or for anyone to lose any sleep. Quite the opposite. Once right. you've got a pro in your corner, the vast majority you of the time, these things all turn out okay. But you are going to see some of these. You know, we're we're selling on someone else's platform and we're selling other brands that we don't own, there's going to be friction from time to time. But uh, Absolutely. don't let that take away from the opportunity as long as you're dealing with the pro. So when you get an IP complaint, gather your information, gather your facts. And if you're not a client of Jeff's, maybe that's a good time to start thinking about hiring someone who knows what they're doing to help you manage this scenario. But any other, any other tips? I know this is a kind of a can of worms. IP complaints can go in so many different directions. Like how many different kinds of IP complaints are there? How do you categorize them? Um, well, so, okay. So let's think about it. There's, I like to categorize IP complaints by... Um, and, and this is just received IP. We're not even going to talk about suspected IP or product authenticity complaints. But just on received IP complaints alone, there's 
trademark category, there's copyright, uh, and there's, there's patents. Those are the top three categories that we look at. Now, within trademark, there's subcategories. So there's trademarks on product, trademark on product detail page, counterfeit, counterfeit without a test buy, parallel imports, which is actually a new one we should talk about. Um, and because um, that just rolled out into the United States um, a couple weeks ago. And then there's uh, trade dress. Um, trade dress, no one ever talks about. No one really even knows about it. And for arbitrage sellers, they'll never need to know about it. But it's funny, nonetheless, the, the uh, Hallmark case in, in, in the Supreme Court you know, case law is actually Taco Bell. They sued Taco Cabana, which is a Texas version of uh, Taco Bell, although I think much better. And they, um, they basically, uh, they both got into a lawsuit over who copied whose table design colors because they each <laughs> used different tile on the, the same tile on their table and wow. said that that was the hallmark of their store. So, huh. um, but okay, so that's trademark. Within copyright, we've got copyright on product. We've got copyright on product detail page. We then also have this other sort of weird copyright that very, very seldomly comes up. Um, but it's copyright counterfeit. That has to do with media and books. So DVDs, CDs, and, and books, and other you know, printed stuff. Uh, and then within patents, uh, design and utility patents are the most common ones sellers would ever you know, inter- interact with. But again, typically only comes up for, uh, for private label sellers that have to worry about the patent cases. Gotcha. Well, that's fascinating to me. It just demonstrates the level of knowledge and experience that you've had, you know, four years doing this and helping Amazon sellers dig out of these little scary pits they find themselves in quite efficiently and with a high success rate. So what I want to talk about today is generic product listings and kind of the pitfalls and things to watch out for with them. So when you think of generic, what comes to your mind, Jim? Yeah, you know, I, I think of a brand that isn't really associated with anything major. You know, the the you know a generic brand maybe would be the store label brand. You know, at right. a at a grocery store. You know, that's what comes to mind for me. So, so I think about it even a little bit more simplistic than that. Like, you know, if you think about like pickles, and you go to the grocery store and you see, I think Vlasic is like the big one that people see in the states. And so you've got Vlasic pickles. That's obviously a brand. And if you get Publix prickle, pickles, then that's a a brand as well. So how do, what would be a true generic in my mind would be the tomato, that tomato that's sitting on the shelf that has no sticker designating where it came from whatsoever, completely unbranded. So when we think about Amazon, they've been really cracking down on these, uh, generic listings. So people have been, uh, you know, sometimes, unfortunately, when you're finding replens, um, you might find a product that has a listing and you, you see two listings. And one of them is, you know, I don't know, let's find, what is our replen today? It's going to be Logitech mouse because <laughs> that's sitting in front of me. So we've got good. a Logitech mouse and we found this re, you know, amazing stock of hundreds of Logitech mice that we're going to send in. And we go to create a listing and Logitech is gated. And so some sellers will say, well, I've got a hundred Logitech mice that I just bought. What do I do with them? And they'll go and they'll create a new listing and they'll type in Logitech and Amazon will say, no, you, you can't use Logitech because it's already taken. So what we've been seeing a rise of is sellers who said, okay, well, I can't take Logitech. I'm going to just put, you know, this mouse looks generic enough to me. I'm just going to say it's generic. And I'm going to sell this as a generic mouse and then list it as a Logitech mouse in the title and the bullet points and a descript- description. 
So that's where Amazon's been cracking down over the last, uh, I'd say probably one and a half to two weeks. They've been cracking down pretty harshly um, against those types of listings. And so we want to watch out for it and make sure that they're, you know, that we're not not listing on them because those wouldn't be the proper listing. It should be Logitech. So even if you're not the original seller who set up the bad listing, yeah, you could still be punished for selling against it because you could be an innocent replant seller who has two or three units to sell and you find this great performing ASIN, but the brand is generic. Or as we've mentioned in a past session, it's maybe a misspelled version of Logitech, Logi-Tech or something to try to get past the filters. Avoid those. You don't want that brand field to misrepresent the actual brand, or you will probably be sitting on an ASIN that will eventually be pulled and shut down. Right. And what's been really odd about these uh, cases that I've seen in the last week, the sellers that are affected have, you know, they're replant sellers. They did not create these listings. And what's even more concerning is that in one case, or I should say in, in three cases, I have three separate sellers. They were all listed against the same ASIN that was listed as generic. What's even more concerning is that that listing wasn't taken down. So Amazon identified the problem. They suspended hmm. these sellers that were listed on the ASIN, but they didn't take the ASIN down. So now there's new sellers going in on that listing that are doing the exact same thing and mistakenly listing on it. So It's almost like it's a trap <laughs> sitting there waiting for people to step on it or something. <laughs> it is really weird. It's a minefield for sure. Yeah. <laughs> it's definitely like a landmine. So, yeah. And anytime we say suspension, you know, what are the prospects of these folks getting their accounts back? It's always a painful, inconvenient thing for sure. But you feeling good about the the accounts be, being restored? Absolutely. Yeah. We've restored, you know, two of them so far in the last couple of weeks here. You know, they sometimes can take longer than others. You know, unfortunately, this type of suspension is what we would call a fraud category. So Amazon generally you know, splits suspensions into different categories. So there's you know, performance related, you know, late shipment rates, order defects, things like that. Those are, I'd, you know, I'd call those your diet suspensions because a good plan of action and some solid you know, corrective actions will get you back pretty fast. Um, you've got your intellectual property suspensions. Those are, you know, you sold a listing that has a trademark complaint or a counterfeit or copyright. Again, inconvenient but recoverable in most cases, as long as you've got good documentation and weren't intentionally selling counterfeits. And then the third category is the fraud category. And those are, you know, where people have engaged in actions that Amazon thinks are fraud, even though, as I know, these are innocent sellers that were never intending to defraud anyone. It's just Amazon, it has that appearance. And so the whole, you know, as soon, as soon as we can convey to Amazon that this was just a mistake, that it's not fraud, and that this won't happen again, you know, they're not, their goal is to get productive, non-fraudulent sellers back on the platform. Whereas the sellers that were intentionally engaging in fraud, well, those sellers obviously do not get back on the platform. Right, right. And so just to sum up, how can we prevent this type of challenge in our account? Can we search our entire inventory for brand generic? You can, yeah. Go to manage inventory, hit that search field, and type in generic. And if it, if you have anything that matches, it's going to come back, and that's a perfect time to re-examine those listings. Ideally, you'll click, type that in, hit search, and it'll say zero results found. And if you do find talking. some, what should you do? Well, if you do find them, yeah, you know, I don't know. Talk to me. <laughs> come up with a plan because you know the first step would be obviously to delete them, and then second step is come up with a plan for how do we how do we handle it next and keep a list of anything you delete because Amazon is data driven. If you delete 17 ASINs that you find that said generic, 
open a Word doc and copy all those ASINs as you're deleting them. So that way, you know that you have you have a record if it ever comes back up again that you can say, hey, Amazon, we identified this problem on, you know, November 1st or November 2nd, whatever day it may be. And these are the ASINs we deleted. Before yeah, and they'll look more favorably if you make a mistake. He's like, hey, okay, this is the guy who's trying to play by the rules. Correct. Great tip. Well, I want to talk about storage space today. So um, a lot of sellers have been reporting that their storage limits got cut by Amazon for FBA. And um, I just you know wanted to talk about you know ways we can mitigate the the challenge that that poses, some alternative options, and then of course for sellers that need more storage space, how you can go about getting some more storage space as well. So. Okay, so, so for the FBA sellers who rely on Amazon to store our inventory, in many yes. cases, now this hasn't happened to me. It's happened to a couple coaches on our team, and a few people have reported it. I think one of our coaches lost almost half their storage space. Where Amazon said, "Hey, you've only got half as much space as you had yesterday." Sorry. <laughs> so, so what's causing that? Causing this, and more importantly, what do we do about it? Absolutely. So, I think you know, number one, what's causing it is staffing issues. Amazon is over, in a sense, they're understaffed and overpromised for the holiday season. And so they're in, you know, you know, I guess like fireman mode right now, trying to put out this massive dumpster fire of not having enough people to work in their warehouses. So they have tons of products flowing in every single day, tons of orders coming in every single day, and not enough people to and robots to ship the orders out. So so we've got you know a, a massive logistical challenge that Amazon's trying to solve, and what we're seeing now is one way they're doing solving it is they're putting storage limits on because if you have you know you know five thousand square feet of storage devoted to one seller who uses all of it, then it means that another seller can't use you know get five hundred square feet if they've already maxed it. So they're reducing some sellers dramatically. Uh, some sellers are not affected at all. It really just seems to be all across the board. Um, it's a little random almost in its application. Huh? Absolutely. I mean, we've seen some massive sellers lose their storage space, which tells me that perhaps they're trying to equalize the playing field. It might be the case. Um, but, you know, of course, it's Amazon. Who knows what the rationale is behind this? Sure. Typically, it's numbers driven if you drill down and it's customer service driven if you really drill down. But it feels kind of random on the playing field for third-party sellers right now. Absolutely. But, so what what are you advising sellers to do? How do, you, how do you prevent it if that's possible? And what are our options to absorb the blow if it does happen? So preventing it, unfortunately, there doesn't seem to be any good option for preventing it. You know, it's numbers driven, like you said. So Amazon is making those those decisions and letting you know after they've made it. So um, there's really not a great solution there for it. But in terms of how to mitigate the effect on your business, that's where we can really shine. And so sellers that are quick to pivot are the ones that can benefit the most from it. Um, and so let's talk about what that looks like. So um, Jim, when I was talking to you about this before, earlier, a little while ago, you had a great idea. You said FBM. And right. Merchant fulfill, baby. Just yeah. like when COVID struck, those of us who are prepared to use our garage or hire a friend or find some local storage space and, and list product as merchant fulfill, right, cleaned up. And I think we're going to see the same thing as a result of this. I think so. So anyone who is eligible to ship Merchant Fulfilled, now keep in mind, some during holiday season, they sometimes don't let newer sellers use Merchant Fulfilled. Right. Uh, I can't remember what the deadline is this year. We may have already passed it, but if we haven't passed it yet, uh, there is a, you can, if you get a certain number of orders in Merchant Fulfilled before the deadline, you get the, to Merchant Fulfilled during Q4. And it's absolutely worth your while, even if that means going out and buying, you know, I think one year it was 50 units. 
go out and buy 50, 50 units of something at the dollar store, put it for right. sale for 25 cents if you have to. Yes. Obviously, you notice I just said we're losing money on every sale. If you buy it for a dollar and you sell it for 25 cents, there's no profit there. Yeah, but you're but this, qualified now to fulfill your own orders. Correct. Like eBay sellers have to do year round, right? You've, you're, as orders come in, you're fulfilling it. You could use a prep center. You could use your garage. You can use a single mom across the street, but fulfill right. your own orders. Absolutely. So fulfillment by merchant, that's you know, step one for mitigation if you can do it. Uh, one thing that uh, a lot of sellers forget about, and I'm guilty, I forget about it too. You are allowed to have an FBA offer and an FBM offer on the same listing. Absolutely. Means, yeah. Like if you have, let's say you bought 10 pairs of Nike sne uh, sneakers at the store and you don't have enough storage space for footwear to send in all 10 pairs. Well, maybe you send in three and keep seven, three FBA off, three going as an FBA offer. You open up a secondary offer for merchant fulfilled for your quantity of seven, you know, by all means. Put them there. Here's something, even another tip you can use. You know, you bought 10 sneakers. The day you buy them at the store, you have 10 available. The day UPS picks up those three, you've got seven. Because what if someone comes in and orders 10 pairs for their entire school team between when you bought it at the store and when Amazon picks it up? Sell it FBM, That's ship right. it out, and then you've got three pairs of sneakers for something else. So part of the beauty of FBM, Merchant Fulfill, is you could be standing in store checking out your inventory, those 10 pairs of sneakers, you're standing there checking out at a retail store and you list them merchant fulfill and they sell before you even pay for them at the register. We hear stories like that. You can't do that with FBA where it takes a week or two and Q4, it could take three or four weeks sometimes for it to get listed and available in the right. system. So you're making sales a lot faster too. So it's very healthy to integrate merchant fulfill and, and that is the, a great way to pivot if you find yourself. And, and for those of us who sell in the hazmat category, I mean, I don't know of anybody that's got a huge hazmat storage space. We're, we're playing with this little tiny square, you know, I don't remember what it was, a couple hundred square, not even, it's it's tiny. I remember what it is. Oh, nice cubic feet or whatever. It's but, tiny. you know, it, it's about 500 to $1,000 worth of product at a time. That's all we can sit in there. Yeah. And we sell a ton of this stuff, but we, we have, we're limited. So we do merchant fulfill a lot of it. Right. Now, so that's one option. Option two um, is just-in-time fulfillment. Now, just-in-time fulfillment is a, uh, believe it or not, a Toyota concept. They're the ones that innovated it. And it's the idea that you send in inventory in smaller numbers and increased frequency. Mm -hmm. So if you have those 10 sneakers and you don't want to use up all 10, you know, maybe you only have a limit of 10 sneakers. Well, we're not going to send, and we've got 10, you know, let's assume we've got 100 pairs of sneakers with 10 different styles, 10 different ASINs. And 10 of each. Well, your options are you could send in all 10 of one ASIN, but now you've got 90 sneakers that are not selling. Or you could send in one of each ASIN and then have nine of each to fill, fill. And as those sell, you just keep sending in You know, every single day. Grab another pair of sneakers, ship it into FBA. Obviously, it's not your most cost-effective option, but it's better than having inventory sit on the, the shelf and not sell at all. It's also yeah. better than not selling a period. So yeah, it's it's better to to consistently trickle in inventory than it is to send a big load of it and it sits in Amazon's warehouse. They're going to typically punish you for that over time. With you know, not just with the storage fees, with potentially with lower storage space available to you. Right. Now you were telling me you're hearing from some sellers who are able to buy more space. Talk me through that. So there have been some reports of sellers reaching out to seller support and saying, I need more space and then being redirected to a buy more inventory space page. I do not know if that's available to every seller or if it's only available to certain sellers, but I know that there are some sellers that have successfully bought more. 
Um, it doesn't come cheap. It's, you know, it's Amazon is, you know, cause I guess in Amazon's eyes, if you're going to buy more storage space from them, you're taking away storage space from other sellers that they're getting for free. So right. they're going right. to make you pay that premium for it. But for, right. for sellers that have the margins and have the volume to support it, it makes a heck of a lot of sense because, you know, if, if you're, if you have to pay Amazon an extra dollar, but you can make $10 then obviously we've netted. Now, if you're having to pay Amazon $10 to make $1, that's not a smart trade. So everyone has to evaluate that option in light it's of a, their... It's finance. a mass decision, yeah. Well, we want to talk about red flags for replens. So, and red flags being IP-related red flags. So thanks for having me on. And uh, I'm excited to talk about the subject. Uh, Let's go, man. That sounds like a good one. All right. Well, intellectual property, as many of y'all know, is one of my passions. And so um, around IP, we've obviously got patents, we've got trademarks, we've got copyrights. Now, luckily for a majority of sellers, when it comes to replens, we don't have to worry about the patent ones, but we do have to worry about copyrights and trademarks. And so that's what we'll really be focusing on today. Um, if you have a patent issue that pops up when it comes to a replen, that is going to be a more complicated issue and certainly not something we'd want to cover on a, on a webinar. So talk to you know, me or my team directly and we'll help you through that. But for the other issues, let's, we'll talk about the red flags to avoid, and that way you guys can get some more profitable products in your catalog. Sounds good. All right. Well, without further ado, let's talk first about copyrights. Copyrights are the most basic element of intellectual property protection. They can be somewhat problematic for replens. Uh, primarily, if you didn't create the listing yourself, which most replen sellers do not create their own listings. Correct. So what you want to watch out for, though, is listings that have been created by other sellers that may use the copyright elements of the brand without the brand's consent. And so what does that look like? Well, if we're listing on, say, a multi-pack, and we notice that the manufacturer does not sell a two-pack, but then we go to the single pack and we see that the photos and the bullet points and the text are exactly the same, aka they've been copied and pasted, that is a clear indication that there could be a copyright concern to watch out for. So how do we mitigate that? Well, we probably stay away from that listing. Um, the, the correct mitigation would be to actually edit the listing, take out the infringing content. However, if you're a brand new seller on that listing, you're not going to have detail page control. So it's going to be far easier just to find a different product to sell instead um, and just view that as a red flag just to avoid that product. Now, if you go on to, you know, let's say we've got a Tide Pod listing, we've got a two pack of two bags of Tide Pod, and it has photos taken by clearly not Tide. All the bullet points are unique to the product that are not written by Tide. That's fine. So what we're really talking about here are those direct copy and paste situations. We want to avoid those to avoid copyright claims. So Excellent, excellent summary. And you want to make sure that the brand is correct. That doesn't absolutely. say generic, as we learned on a recent episode. Yes, absolutely. And that brings us into trademarks. So thank you for this great segue. I was helping you segue. There we go. You got it. So for the second big thing we want to talk about is trademarks. So trademark infringement is not quite as cut and dry as copyright. So with trademarks, it has to do with likelihood of confusion, so um, which is the big test that the courts use. Whereas copyright, uh, most of the courts use the test of, is it copied? It's a lot easier to answer that question. Um, with trademark, it has to do with likelihood of confusion. So what do we mean by that? Well, let's go back to that two-pack example. You know, we've got two boxes of, um, you know, Land Lakes butter that we bought on sale at the store, and we're going to try to sell, you know, FBM as a replen. Well, if we go on and there's a land of lakes one box listing and there's a land and then there's a there's not a two box listing or we find a two box replens listing but it's not endorsed by the brand 
that would be something to watch out for. So where does trademark become an issue? If you've got incorrect product uh, brand name, that can be grounds for a trademark infringement claim against the listing. Similarly, if you've got a, um, if you have a, a, a trademark case where you've got uh, the misspelled brand name, that can also lead to to trademarks. You know, generic, as you mentioned, is a big one to watch out for. Um, other things we've seen manufacturers take down duplicate listings or second, you know, these multi-pack listings for is having incorrect brand names. So um, I should have picked something that I knew. Land Lakes, I don't know who owns them, but right. uh, and, and I don't know many resellers that sell refrigerated items on <laughs> replants. Anyway. Stay example. away from those. <laughs> right. Probably a bad example, anyways, all around. Well, to keep it in the spirit of keeping it going, <laughs> let's say that let's just make it up and say Land Lakes is owned by Mayfield, which might be accurate, but probably isn't. Uh, you know, if you put in on the manufacturer, if you go and you find the Land Lakes single pack and it says the manufacturer is Mayfield, and then you go and you find this multi pack and the manufacturer is listed as Land Lakes, that would be a red flag to watch out for because the information doesn't match. Um, unfortunately, some, uh, law firms like Voris have started using those mismatches as grounds for trademark infringement claims against the listing. Now, we haven't seen them sue anybody over it, which is the good news. The bad news is that they do take down the listings because they'll go in and they'll file an IP infringement and say, Land Lakes is owned by Mayfield. Mayfield is the manufacturer. And the listing shows that the manufacturer is Land Lakes, and therefore you need to take down the listing. So that's just something to watch out for as well. That can be a, be a problem area there. So... Great advice and great input. And I, I know there's frequent times, I would say most of us who are selling on Amazon uh, every couple months or so, there's something where we think to ourselves, man, I wish I had a, a legal expert <laughs> I could bounce this off of. Absolutely. How can folks go about securing your services, Jeff? So that's why I came up with the, the retainer plan I did. So it's $89 a month. Whenever you come up with these legal questions, you just simply bounce them off me or my team. We can help you answer them, whether they're legal, whether they're Amazon, they could be Walmart, eBay, you name it. Bring the questions to us. We either will know the answer or we'll know how to get you to someone who does know the answer. So, you know, we're the first to send someone back. You know, if someone's working with one of the coaches here and they ask me a question that I can't answer, I send them right back to the coach and I say, you know, Phrase it this way, and <laughs> the coach mm -hmm. will know exactly what you need to do. So, you know, beautiful. Beauty of you know, go ahead. So, I was gonna say that's the beauty of working with the Jim's coaches and us together because I actually had a case recently with one of Jim's coaches and one of his coaching students, and we, you know, we the coaching student student didn't know how to do certain things that we were advising him to do, and he uh, he we got on a conference call with me and the coach and the coaching student, and we resolved everything on a zoom it was it was fantastic beautiful. i appreciate the way you serve this community it's something i really appreciate you too, about you too jeff is i know up until we began a relationship with you we saw many sellers spending thousands and thousands of dollars for relatively simply resolved issues and for 89 dollars a month that's just tremendous i know that I know you're going to probably uh, lock that in and you're going to grandfather folks in but man that's yeah. a steal it really is for the services you provide uh, when you know we'd see people get suspended and have to go spend five, six, eight thousand dollars to get their account back, you know, yeah. um, and, and you offer all those services for eighty nine dollars a month, it's tremendous. So I appreciate the the value you br you bring to our community. Thank you so much. We appreciate being being a part of it. So JeffShick dot com, just like the razor, is a good yep. way to say it, right? We'll stick a link in the show notes. People can go check it out. So we'll do this again real soon. Okay, Jeff. Sounds good. Thank you. Thanks, buddy. Talk to you soon. 
Hey, thanks for hanging out today. Before I let you go, one short reminder. We are so grateful to our new sponsor to this program, Seller Board. If you haven't checked them out yet, get over to silentgym.com numbers. This is the software that tells you if you're profitable or not. It helps you track all of your expenses, your KPIs, sales, refunds, advertising costs, all of it. Profit, loss. This is tremendous software that fills a gap in the marketplace. Many successful sellers in our community are using this tool to help them know which of their products are profitable and which ones aren't. You'll love Sellerboard for just $15 a month starting. You can really dial in and know how your business is doing. SilentGym.com slash numbers. Talk to you next time. Thank you for listening to Silent Sales Machine Radio. Visit SilentGym.com for a link to our free newsletter, our free Facebook group, and all of our resources mentioned on today's show.